This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. On the podcast this week, COP26, the final verdict. The curtain has fallen on Glasgow's climate conference, but is the overtime pact agreed, the first ever to explicitly mention reducing reliance on coal, enough? Plus, as stories of government corruption continue to come to light, political writer Steve Richards joins us to discuss if this is the worst government Britain has ever seen. And with increasing numbers of stories and hot takes, true and false, coming at us from every angle these days, how can we, as consumers of information, deal with news fatigue? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker, your podcast umbrella in this shower of shite. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to former Foreign Office diplomat, fresh from podcasting triumph, Arthur Snell. Oh, thank you, Alex. Great to be here. <laughs> Arthur, first of all, on the terrorist incident and subsequent arrests in Liverpool, at the time of recording, which is Monday afternoon, we have very little solid information. And while this hasn't stopped many eager pundits from speculating, as it turns out, wildly, we have decided to take the high road and not add to the fog. The one thing we do know, and on which we can usefully contribute, is that the threat level has been raised to severe. So what does that mean in practice? What is the difference between substantial and severe, and how should we as citizens respond to that change? Yeah, so... The, there are five of these threat levels from low to critical. Low is basically, there's no indication of any sort of terrorism going on. Critical is that there's an expectation of an imminent attack. Severe is an attack is highly likely, whereas substantial is just likely. Now, a lot of this is just words. Sometimes people are rather cynical about this, and they'll say it's the government trying to you know, get the population to take their security measures more seriously. But I, I'm not inclined to take that view. I think on this, it probably suggests that there are credible reasons either to believe that the person in the Liverpool context was not operating completely on their own, or that as a result of that, maybe some others might take action in reaction to, to mm -hmm. that attack. It's not straightforward. That the government has quite a lot of internal processes it goes through before it raises the threat level. So I think it's something that we should take seriously. But of course, as private citizens, there's not that much you can do. 
you know, it's clearly uh, we need to sort of carry on living our lives as best we can, really. Further afield, there's also considerable turn at the moment, both on the Belarusian borders with several EU countries and around Ukraine. To my untrained eye, this appears quite concerted and menacing. How does it appear to your trained eye? Uh, I think I, I'd match that assessment. Uh, there's lots of indications, uh, particularly on the Ukraine front, of a concerted and very deliberate effort by the Russians to destabilize the situation. So they've massed nearly 100,000 troops on the, the Ukraine border, including a large uh, tank division. And, of course, at the same time as this, you've got the situation unfolding in Belarus, which is where migrants are being flown largely from Syria, but also from Iraq into Belarus and effectively unleashed and sort of basically driven towards the Polish border. So in both of these cases, it seems very clear that what's happening is that Putin is trying to test the West to sort of push us back on our heels. And I think particularly to test Biden, because Putin and Biden, there's been an attempt by Biden not not to go soft on on Putin, but an attempt to find a level at which that they can cooperate. Mm, mm. And I think so what we're seeing here is, is Putin deliberately trying to needle Biden as much as possible. And perhaps now that COP26 is over, now that that's out of the way, so the world's attention turns to other things, and we're seeing that sort of push un, un, underway. Is there a sense in which the Belarusian president is also a little bit of a loose cannon? Because Putin seemed to distance himself a tiny bit from what was going on at COP26, not in the cynical way he usually does with a glint in his eyes saying, you know, nothing to do with me, but in a sort of real way, he seemed to me to be saying, mm, yeah, maybe he should rein it in a tiny bit. Yes, I think the Belarusian president, Lukashenko, he's useful to Putin in the sense that the relationship is one of supplicant. So Putin can discredit him, can be quite um, sort of disrespectful, frankly, towards him if he wants to. And at other times, of course, he can offer him support both covertly, but also overtly through supplying energy and, and other basic support to the, to the regime there. So in this case, Lukashenko definitely is a loose cannon. He's, um, th- there are statements coming out from his office, which are very sort of bluntly talking about the ways in which he's weaponizing this migration crisis. And I'm sure he is delighted, he, Lukashenko, is delighted to have a situation where, although he is a weak president of a very weak country, he's found the EU's weak spot. And of course, that is always migration, because as wealthy countries, including Poland and Lithuania, relatively speaking, we're very, uh, very sensitive to these migration questions. So I think Lukashenko is probably delighted to find something that he can generate a reaction on. There is also the matter of your smash hit new series, <laughs> Doomsday Watch. A new episode is out on Wednesday. What's the potential global threat that you're dissecting this week? Well, Everything follows seamlessly, I, I'm, I, I hasten to add. So at the end of the US episode, we talk about how other countries, particularly autocratic countries, take advantage of the sort of disorder and chaos in the US. Well, we, we've already talked a bit about Russia, and we'll get to that next week. But this week, we're looking at China, and particularly 
the role of Xi Jinping in driving a newly aggressive Chinese policy with relation to flashpoints such as the South China Sea and Taiwan. So for, for those who, who haven't, uh, haven't yet had a chance to listen, you've got the first and the second episode due out imminently. And uh, I encourage everybody to give it a go. Mm, I can't wait. Also back on the bunker, uh, welcome to the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Hello. Hello, Yasmin. Yasmin, erstwhile Trump advisor and international far-right stylist Steve Bannon, <laughs> um, has been indicted by a federal grand jury on two charges of criminal contempt for defying a congressional subpoena. Is that as serious as it sounds? Well, yes, it is serious, uh, serious enough at least that Steve Bannon actually, as far as I could see from the photo, only wore one collared shirt in the coverage of him, not the several that he usually <laughs> does. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, I think it's it signals that, that Congress is at least serious about hearing from the 35 people and organizations that it has subpoenaed as part of its investigation into the circumstances that led to the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January mm. 6th. Um, so far... President Trump, or former President Trump, I should say, um, has directed all of his former aides and advisors. That includes folks like Bannon, but also other notable figures uh, like his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, Stephen Miller, and the like. He's basically told all of them not to cooperate with the probe. Um, mm. And in Bannon's case in particular, he's claimed that his conversations with Trump were covered by executive privilege, uh, despite the fact that you know he's been out of a job at the White House for several years now, um, including at the time that the the insurrection took place. But you know the cost of of, of not cooperating as Bannon is doing it is somewhat steep. I mean, each count of contempt of Congress carries um, a maximum of one year in jail, minimum of 30 days, um, and could also cost as much as $1,000 in fines. So, you know, it, it is, I, I think, pretty serious. And I think it's also worth noting, just in terms of the seriousness, contempt charges are not something that the Justice Department just hands out willy-nilly. Um, I, I was looking back, and I think the last time that they did this was almost 40 years ago, and that was to do with someone who worked in the Reagan administration. So, you know, I think in many ways, the fact that Bannon has been indicted is sort of, I guess, maybe a litmus test for how far Biden's Justice Department is willing to go um, to get these individuals um, and organizations to play ball effectively. But but as for whether, you know, Bannon sees it as serious, I'm not actually, it's unclear to me if jail time is, is going to have the desired effect on Bannon. It's worth remembering that Trump supporters like him don't necessarily even recognize, you know, the legal and constitutional systems that are compelling him to speak right now. You know, as far as they're concerned, anything that went untoward on January 6th, if it indeed was untoward, is, is not um, of Trump's making um, or, or Trump's fault. Well, he may not believe, he may not believe in it, but it believes in him, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it, you know, so it, it, I, I could very much see a world in which, you know, Bannon sees himself as, you know, this sort of soldier fighting the last great fight against the establishment and the elite, etc. So, you know, in, in that respect, he may be cheered by this sort of last stand that he gets to make. But we'll see, um, you know, whether... Uh, yeah, you know, no, that's, that's, that's a useful distinction because contempt of parliament here in the UK when you refuse to appear in front of a committee is a rather toothless thing mm. where basically, you know, parliament tells you naughty naughty and if you show up in parliament again then they have the right until some ancient law to imprison you but it never actually happens but in this case it's an actual federal criminal offense 
Does this story have the potential to expand sideways in a way that does collateral damage to Trump 2024, he asked, hopefully? Trump, by by all intents and purposes, does appear to be stonewalling this investigation. I mean, I think the fact that he's telling his former advisors and associates not to cooperate um, is is indicative of the fact that, you know, he obviously doesn't want this investigation to go ahead. And, you know, there is something of a time limit on it and in, in to the extent that, you know, the 2022 midterms are coming up next year. And if the Republicans look primed to potentially win back control of the House, a Republican majority could potentially shutter the investigation. So in that respect, yes, you know, I think Trump has a lot of interest in not seeing this investigation go ahead. But that said, if he does run, and at this point, we don't have any reason to think that he won't try, you know, this is going to be a campaign that's run on grievance, you know, against mm-hmm. the, su- the supposed stolen election, against the establishment, against the very notion that he or any of his, his supporters did anything wrong. So, you know, in that respect, I think that, you know, whether the probe will somehow deter him or his supporters support for him, I can't necessarily see that happening. No, you know, I think people have very much chosen the narratives that they're going to run with. And for Trump, it is very much grievance. Um, and I think he he banked on that, knowing that, you know, if, if indeed he lost the election, he would at the very least be able to ride that wave of grievance to the next election and the next election and however many times he decides he wants to run. Our special guest today, Steve Richards, columnist, host of the podcast Rock and Roll Politics and author whose most recent work, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, is a must read for anyone who wants to understand the fine line that separates legacy from obscurity. Welcome back to The Bunker, Steve. Thank you very much, Alex. Steve, I have read several right-wing opinion pieces in the last 10 days, all of which seem to advance the thesis that the problem in Britain today is that despite the Brexit-Johnson glorious revolution, too many organizations, regulators, universities, and cultural institutions are controlled still by evil Blairites. Do they have a point, or is this their attempt at Red's under-the-bed distraction? They don't have a point, and it is very interesting that they dare to assert it, really, that the control of this particular government is uh, over many institutions uh, is stronger than I can recall of any other. Certainly, uh, the New Labour era, Blair and Brown were so insecure about their position with Middle England. They used to bring loads of outsiders in as a, a form of vindication, as a way of saying, look, Middle England, it's not just Labour here. We're bringing in non-Labour people left, right and centre bankers to review whether taxes should go up for the NHS, being one example of a thousand. Here, it is wholly partisan. They have many uh, doting newspapers. The BBC, I I find fascinating the uh, levels of kind of fear within the BBC about what Number 10 might be doing to it. And so, uh, and they've got a majority of 80 when they kind of go for other institutions, I see on the whole those institutions quivering with a degree of fear, not a kind of, you know, you come after us and we'll sort you. They are dominant uh, in a way that um, hasn't been the case for a government for quite some time. 
Mm. So, I mean, what explains, I don't know if you've noticed this spate of pieces uh, asserting this. Yeah, I have, yeah. It it has to be then either a very common misconception or somehow coordinated. I don't, well, I think there's a bit of coordination. There's a sort of uh, mood within a, a faction of number 10 who believe that by going big on sort of culture wars and kind of lefties in universities, lefties in the media, it actually helps bind them with their kind of core support. But I don't think it's wholly coordinated. And I think actually on several levels, it's genuine. To give a recent example, when Charles Moore wrote a piece saying that Owen Patterson in The Telegraph had been badly treated by the independent investigation into what he had been up to, I'm sure Johnson read Charles Moore's piece and got cross on behalf of Patterson, and he would have thought, oh, Remainer elite, Remainer elite, Mm, taking mm. on one of ours. And so I think it is genuine, but not based on anything at all. And it is interesting when prime ministers or a government are very powerful. They don't feel powerful. They seek more power. And when governments are more fragile, they don't act in this way. It's, it, is, it is interesting. Up until now, it might change with opinion poll leads go, slipping. Mm. But up until now, I say total dominance of whatever institution they have sought to impose their will over and very little resistance. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, Boris Johnson declared when he opened COP26. It's fair to ask, two weeks later, what time is it now? After heading deep into overtime, COP26 came to a close with a climate agreement of sorts after a last-minute move by China and India, which further watered down the already diluted language around coal. According to most experts, the 1.5 Celsius target is, if not quite dead on life support, and time is running out. And there was nothing for the global south on the vital issue of loss and damage. Yasmin, for hours it looks like a deal wasn't going to happen, then that it would, then that it wouldn't again. But in the end, we did get something. In broad terms, what do we know about the pact signed on Saturday? What are the headlines? So the... the this was basically a non-binding, uh, legally at least, a non-binding agreement, which basically set out the global agenda on climate change for the next decade. Um, so among the things it agreed, it agreed that um, countries will meet next year to pledge further CO2 emission cuts. I think one of the big headlines from the COP26 over the couple of weeks that it was running was that the current pledges, if met, would actually only limit global warming to about 2.4 degrees Celsius. And that's according to the Climate Action Tracker. Obviously, there would be a hope that countries would come with um, with, with kind of more um, ambitious pledges um, in the future. Um, as you noted, the agreement included an explicit plan to phase down rather than to phase out the use of coal, um, a distinction that was made after a last minute intervention by China and India. Mm. The agreement also pledged to increase money to help poor countries cope with the effects of climate change and to make a switch to clean energy. And then, you know, there are also other agreements. I think world leaders also agreed um, to phase out subsidies that artificially lower the price of coal, oil, and natural gas. Um, but as 
I understand, there are no firm dates um, set on that. Um, and there were a couple of other banner announcements that we heard throughout the summit, the agreement by leaders of more than 100 countries to stop deforestation by 2030. There was also a pledge, which was also supported by more than 100 countries to cut methane emissions by 30 by 30% by 2030. Um, gosh, it feels like I'm rambling and, and I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 you know, no. There were a lot of things going on, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think- There were side all... deals. There were, there were interesting yes. side deals, but the core thing seems to me to be aspirational, basically. Exactly. What I was going to ask is this phase down rather than phase out usage of coal. I mean, obviously it's a watering down, but it's still the first- time that an agreement aspires to reduce coal usage at all. So is that not a step forward? I, I think it is a step forward it, to the extent that obviously, I mean, you know, the, the key way and the most important way to stop climate change is to stop burning fossil fuels for energy. So in, in that respect, yes, it, it is a big issue. But, you know, I think kind of looking broadly at, at the agreement that we have, and, and this is something that my colleague Robinson Meyer reported over the weekend, is, is that, you know, pledges to the, the country's pledges um, are more ambitious than they were back in 2015. And that's a good thing. According to the Climate Action Tracker, the current pledges by countries for 2030 would get the world to 2.4 degrees Celsius. But I think what's key to note from this whole thing is that these are pledges, not policies. And the policies that are currently in place are not as strong as what c- countries have pledged. Mm. And I can United States is an example here that, for example, the Biden administration has promised to have um, the U.S.'s emissions by 2030, but it hasn't as yet passed any legislation that would accomplish that. So, um, but, you know, as my colleague Rob pointed out, I mean, the whole point of COP um, is to push like of having these cops, of having world leaders come and gather in the same city for weeks on end to, to hash out these things is to kind of have that theatrical aspect, the deadlines, the weighty declarations, um, that that is kind of an important part to ensuring that, you know, countries are coming together and talking actively about these things together. And but yeah, I mean, I think, as you rightly note, obviously, there are attempts to water things down. But I think overall, obviously, having some progress is is better than nothing. There was surprisingly positive engagement in that none was expected by both India and Brazil. But you wrote in The Atlantic last weekend that you have your doubts about the sincerity of populist leaders making big banner promises. Why do you suggest caution? The reason I suggest caution is because you know, the kind of multilateral engagement um, that is required to tackle climate change is anathema to, to nationalist leaders, many of whom also happen to be, until recently, some of the world's most vocal climate skeptics. Um, you know, we're, we're slowly starting to see a sort of change in tone from a lot of particularly far-right nationalist leaders. I think the more and more that they recognize that denying the existence of climate change outright, the more we're starting to hear them kind of shift to not skepticism around climate change, but skepticism around the solutions that have been proposed. I heard one person describe it as a movement from denialism to delayism. Precisely, yes. This argument that, like, of course we believe in human-induced climate change, but all the solutions to tackle it, we don't agree with it. They're bad. They're going to hurt ordinary people. Um, and, and you know, they're kind of almost regurgitating a lot of the arguments that we'd hear the far right make about immigration um, um, and, and even, indeed, the pandemic. But but more fundamentally, though, I think you, you need to take 
yes, you take nationalist leaders like Jair Bolsonaro was the focus of my piece at their word, but you also need to look at their track records. Mm. And, um, you know, I think with Bolsonaro in particular, it's very clear that this is not a leader who has taken climate change very seriously and, in fact, has overseen a surge in Amazon deforestation since he came into office. So it probably behooves him to appear to care about this issue, particularly because he's facing an election next year. But, you know, until we have actual legally binding changes that are going to tie leaders like this into taking serious action, you know, I wouldn't hold my breath that he's going to, you know, start leading this sort of green, green movement in Brazil. Arthur, uh, COP26 President Alok Sharma said that India and China must explain themselves to climate vulnerable countries for blocking the phasing out of coal. What was the reasoning behind their doing this? So both India and China, the basic issues that they have, which is unique to both countries, and their populations are in the billions, not the millions. They have huge numbers of people entering the middle class year on year. And that means people who buy electric appliances, maybe they, they buy their first car, they might have air conditioning units. And there is inevitability about a surge of energy demand in both countries. And of course, the countries telling them to phase out coal are countries whose populations have already per capita consume uh, or emit large amounts of CO2. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this to defend the position of India and China. And I think in particular, there does seem to have been a bit of an ambush right at the end of the process from those two countries, which therefore bounced both the hosts, but also uh, crucially the US and the EU with a bit of a fait accompli. But basically, it is impossible for the economic growth that India and China have experienced to continue if they were to abandon coal precipitately. And so I think there there are basic political realities there. Now, I'm sure there are lots of people who are environmentalists who would quite rightly say, well, then, you know, these countries must invest more in re- renewable energy. But it would be at a scale that I, it is not practicable. Or then you say, well, then perhaps this headlong economic growth is not sustainable. Well, perhaps, but then you're talking about political instability in the two most populated countries in the world. So it seems to me the issue is more, perhaps, that this fundamental challenge had not been tackled earlier in the process because it was always going to be there. And and we must accept that, you know, sometimes with these things, maybe they have a point, you know, maybe to sit at a particular sort of level of comfort for your population and demand that others don't attain that for their population is is a political problem. How will this episode, do you think, affect China and India's standing around the world? Will, will there be repercussions for them? And what about Australia, accused by some of agitating behind the scenes on this, but hiding behind the two big boys? Yes, well, Australia, particularly vis-a-vis China, benefits because it's, it, China is a huge market for its coal, e- even in spite of the current tensions on various sort of political security issues between Australia and China, they're still able to sell them huge quantities of coal. But to go back to your question, I mean, I think it is a reminder that large countries at the end of the day, just as President Trump walked out of the Paris Agreement, very large countries can walk away from major global deals. And there isn't that much that can be done about it. Mm. Now, some people will 
seek to demonize in different ways. The, the, the Chinese, of course, a major authoritarian nation. India, much more democratic, albeit with an authoritarian ruler at the moment. Some people will seek to attach some opprobrium to the specific uh, identities of their current leaders. But I wouldn't have been surprised if almost any Indian or Chinese leader would have taken this line. And of course, one of the things that particularly Britain as the first major country in the world to industrialize that we like to forget is that our historic carbon emissions, you know, the, the sort of budget over the century yeah. still dwarfs that of um, uh, some of these developing countries. So we just have to, I think, have a certain level of realism. But that doesn't mean that then we should just say, well, you know, let them keep burning coal. It's just it is what it is. I think it must, uh, particularly with India, where, of course, their own resources are, are more limited, there must be a lot more that can be done to help them transition as quickly as possible. On the plus side, earlier in the conference, China struck a surprising cooperation deal with the US. What, what do we know about it and how encouraging is it that even during such a low in the relations, they can sort of compartmentalize climate change as an issue and say, we might hate each other's guts, but at least we can work together? Yeah, I mean, I think that the key point on that deal was, was regarding methane, which, of course, is a particularly troubling greenhouse gas. You know, it has its greenhouse effect is even more than CO2. I think it tells us a couple of things. One is, you know, don't underestimate John Kerry, who has shown himself both on this, but also in his earlier um, sort of iteration, both as Secretary of State, but also the negotiator on the Iran nuclear deal. He's a very dogged and determined diplomat. And, and I think, you know, he, he does credit to his country. I think it's very encouraging because there were fears that the geopolitical security divisions between China and America would preclude them from reaching any cooperation on climate matters. Now, we seem to have seen that that has not been the case. Mm. Having said that, of course, what China didn't do was was sign up to the phasing out of coal. So I think with all these things, of course, climate does affect everyone. You know, the Chinese themselves, their population, there are loads of literally hundreds of millions of people at risk from flooding and other other climate change developments, desertification and so on. So it, ultimately, we're in this constant, all countries are in this constant tension between the short-term political ec- economic gains and the long-term existential threat. And this is just another emanation of that. Steve, uh, COP26 was Britain's big moment in the sun. Adam Vaughan, uh, chief reporter from The New Scientist, told us before the conference that it was the biggest event Britain has hosted since the Olympics. Has Global Britain managed to announce itself to the world? No, Um, although in fairness, it should be said that this was not probably a single event which would allow Global Britain, which incidentally is is a a mythical slogan. Yes, I I hope you picked up that my voice was heavily (laughs) talismanic. I did pick up on that. I just thought I'd reinforce it. (laughs) It was never going to be the moment where that was the case. Global Britain, if it was real, would be manifesting itself in 
trade, uh, uh, economic growth, in um, leading the way on COVID and so on. Of course, the reverse is true in all those areas. COP, uh, of course, was a, a, a global event of epic significance. Mm. And I, f- I found your discussion fascinating. I don't know whether Johnson, if he had been, had the capacity for the sort of hard grind of endless travel and talk, could have swayed India, Russia, China to be more engaged from an earlier opportunity, because these things were never going to be done in the final half an hour on a Saturday in Glasgow. I just don't know the answer to that. I do well, know. I mean, that. on that, one of the questions persistently directed at the government in the days since the conference is whether climate goals should be included in trade deals that we seek to do with countries like India. Can the government realistically continue to waft this criticism away and claim those are totally separate issues? Do you think? No. And it is really interesting that trade deals uh, post-Brexit have been so elusive, given that we were told they were going to be so easy. And of course, they would become more complex if there were goals related to climate change. But they are absolutely central to addressing climate change. Mm. Indeed, one of the sort of perversities, given what is a partly sincere focus in Johnson's case, conversion for various shallow reasons, but it is a conversion to being worried about global climate change, is the focus on trade halfway around the world. Mm. You turn your back on uh, your closest neighbours physically, geographically, so everything will have to be flown in from Australia and New Zealand, as far as there is movement on trade deals in those places. That's absolutely right, that it should be central to it. But of course, it then makes it much harder to do trade deals with these distant places. It pre- presents another, in inverted commas, barrier to mm. trade deals. So, so you can see why they're reluctant, given that they are desperate to hail trade deals left, right and centre uh, in the build up to the next election. I don't think they'll be able to anyway, actually. So they mm. might as well put it in. And, and Johnson, of course, also had to stand up halfway through the conference and declare that the UK was not a corrupt country in a sort of international press conference. Do you think that sort of thing has an impact in the way the UK is viewed abroad? Uh, you know, we have the, the G7 and the G20 were both kind of infected by petty Brexit squabbles between the UK and, and France, and, and now on this, you know, all the corruption stuff is going on. Do, d- does any of that filter through to oh, international got, delegates? Oh, I've got absolutely no doubt it does. I mean, just to take a trivial example, while all those world leaders and negotiators were in Glasgow, they would have noticed what was on the British media in the same way that when we go to another country, Mm. go to America or whatever, we kind of clock what's happening in those countries. And they would have noted the story that was dominating uh, the media during quite a lot of the Glasgow conference. I I am still amazed. I mean, Johnson 
has been very careful. He's decided he's not going to declare a formal apology for what happened in relation to the Patterson saga. And yet he was clumsy enough to declare amidst a sort of global audience that Britain isn't corrupt. Now, the journalist in him, and he is largely still a journalist, a columnist of a certain type, should have been alert to the fact that by saying it conveys an impression that actually it is corrupt, because there you are having to challenge the perception. And I'm surprised his antennae has been, which is limited at the best of times, has been very blunt, uh, Mm. blunted recently. And for him not to realise that that would be the impression formed. Um, Now, obviously, this wasn't uppermost in the mind of people gathering from around the world to deal with the biggest issue in the world. But again, as you suggested earlier, it's not a great impression for global Britain to be projecting to the world when the world's eyes were on global Britain. Yes, I mean, everyone ultimately has a, a, that participated in the conference has a, a, an interest in spinning it in a particular way. Alok Sharma, the president, was nearly in tears as he closed the summit. Is that the most honest assessment of how it actually went? Um, do you think that's how history will judge COP26? I would imagine that those tears were probably a lot to do with frustration. Um, and yeah, and, and I think to an extent, yes, because I think, you know, if if we sort of try to imagine the question that historians are going to ask, it's going to be, you know, did we act soon enough? Whatever agreements were made um, during the summit, we know for a fact that 1.5, if not completely dead, is on life support. So, you know, in that respect, um, yeah, I I think historians will look back as seeing that we we didn't do enough fast enough. And, you know, also just within the context of the fact that we're already experiencing a, a lot of the repercussions of the climate crisis in the form of historic flooding and wildfires and heat waves. Like we're already experiencing some of this and we're kind of mm. setting ourselves up to experience even more of it in the future. So it's, it's hard to see how historians would see that as anything but a, a failure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If the last decade has taught me anything, it is that every time I think the quality of our politics has hit rock bottom, a hitherto unseen trapdoor opens to some new and imaginably awful circle of hell. David Cameron made me long for John Major, Theresa May made me long for David Cameron, and Boris Johnson makes me long for a large asteroid. But is that an accurate reflection, or does the government one is living through always seem worse than any before it. Steve, you're the expert on British political history. 
Where does this government rank compared to previous administrations? Well, it depends what area of government you are reflecting on. I think in terms of this word sleaze, which is a sort of imprecise word, it's applied to every government, uh, applied to John Major, a figure you were yearning for, Alex, uh, <laughs> uh, when you were living through um, David yeah, Cameron. But, but um, that's a reflection of the times, isn't it? Yeah, With all, yeah, everything, and, uh, everything going on at the moment, I would happily take someone whose peccadillo is toe-sucking. <laughs> Jen, uh, yeah, and that wasn't him. That was David Mellor from my memory, or yeah. allegedly. No, apparently, apparently it never happened. But, it, but it, it proves a point that, you know, perceptions of sleaze erupt all the time. It, it, it tormented Tony Blair, it tormented Gordon Brown, and so on. But objectively, whether you are a Tory supporter or not, you would have to acknowledge that what happened, indeed many Tory MPs are reflecting on it with fury, what happened with the Owen-Patterson saga is truly astonishing. And if Labour had more uh, kind of political sense at the moment, it would be focusing far more on that than second jobs. Hmm. Because it was really shocking, really shocking, wherever you stand politically. Here was someone who an independent investigation had found to have broken the rules. The investigation was thorough, and anyone who reads that report would come to a conclusion that he had broken the rules. So a government tries to change the rules and not only change them, replace the independent sort of scrutiny with a committee backed by a majority of Conservative MPs. I mean, is up with just saying it. I'm still yeah. shocked by it. <laughs> and I cannot think of an equivalent like that in modern times, you know, that have been, uh, you know, Lloyd George was dodgy with selling well, you know, cash for honours, as it became mm. known. And Blair faced a police investigation for cash for honours. So these things are always around. But I can't remember anything quite as uh, blatant as that in modern times. I mean, you, you know, prime ministers have been incompetent on epic scales. And you think of Suez and Chamberlain with appeasement and all the rest of it. But in each case, there was a case for what they were doing. There mm. is no excuse for this. So on that basis, uh, I think they stand right at the top of the table of the worst. But on other matters, it's really objective. You could say, you know, that now you're yearning, Alex, for Cameron and all the rest of it, that some of their ideas are an example of the Conservative Party moving on, overdue moving on from, uh, 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 from, moving on yeah. from Thatcherism, you know, the levelling up, the use, the public spending increases, the tax rises. Cameron and Osborne wouldn't have contemplated any of that. It's all been driven. And the IFS has said quite objectively, wholly necessarily, uh, it's, but it's all been driven by Johnson. So, so that record is more mixed. But if you want to do a kind of sleazometer, <laughs> I think it absolutely tops the lot. Because it's so self-inflicted, as you said. Yeah, and um, it's part of a wider pattern. Uh, and and in, yet, Steve, and yet, and yet, you know what I'm going to say. Now. Yeah. Until very recently, they were still ahead in most polls. Why does polling so often fail to match up to competence, reality, you know, what's going on? Well, here I'm going to say something which no politician can say. I mean, voters have got a role to play in all of this. In other words, if they decide or a majority decide, 
oh, well, none of this matters, it will continue. And Mm. it's quite hard to work out the inner thinking of Boris Johnson sometimes. But for sure, he is obsessed by the opinion polls. And if he finds that he can do these things and his lead quadruples, he will carry on doing them. And so it's partly down to the voters. I don't entirely buy this thing, oh, it's all baked in, they know he's a rogue, but they love him. I, I think it's partly to do with the fact that they think he delivered Brexit, so he's the honourable one, he followed the referendum. We all know that he hasn't delivered it and it's still in chaos. But technically he did, and that formed a bond. They think it's the the rest of the so-called elite that betrayed and cannot be trusted. Mm. Um, and only now, I think, are they reflecting on this other side, this roguery that has been a running theme throughout his public and private life. Arthur, Iraq is synonymous with Blair. Falklands are forever attached to Thatcher. Churchill and the war, Eden and Suez. But interestingly, success or failure in foreign policy often does not translate to electoral success or failure. And yet we almost always focus on it retrospectively to determine a PM's legacy. What what explains this, do you think? Well, it's a really interesting question. I have to admit, until you ask it, I I never quite thought about it that way. I imagine there's a couple of things. I think big foreign policy issues have a very long tail. So obviously, we can look at the situation in Iraq right now and think, we know how that began, Mm. and it doesn't, doesn't look like much of a success. Whereas perhaps domestic policy is a sort of constant turning wheel. And certainly for most people, and I'm, I'm not saying this in any way to, to suggest that pe- people are sort of lacking uh, or people are ignorant, but for most people, foreign policy is something you, you concentrate on now and then when a big crisis happens. Whereas domestic policy is just this constant, you know, you're constantly worried about the NHS or the state of your kids' schools or, mm-hmm. you know, the... The, the state of the economy and that sort of thing. So I think that's why it is. But you're absolutely right. I mean, people forget that in 2005, Blair won a huge majority, albeit not nearly as big as he'd won in 97 and 2001. But he that was when the situation in Iraq was already pretty bad. So, yeah. We know that Brexit has damaged our international reputation, but, but events move quickly and foreign policy is nothing if not pragmatic. We've seen that at COP26. How do you think this government ranks strictly in terms of foreign policy? So let's exclude the madness of Brexit for a moment. Yeah. Assess the situation as it is now. Yes. And, well, let's take COP26. They've done a better job than I expected, given that you've got a prime minister who literally preferred to take a private jet to the Garrett Club in order to... Uh, drink port with Charles Moore and and talk about how they could rescue their mutual friend Owen Paterson. Given you've got all that against you, they have managed to host a climate summit that whilst a long way from perfect, you would have to acknowledge that it it was a reasonably good effort. Yes, there were people queuing and yes, the final outcome was not quite where we wanted to. I think though, to get to the core of your question, in a way, the problem is that they don't take Brexit out of it. So 
Whatever we think about Brexit, it would be perfectly possible to have left the European Union and then say, we're a free, independent, sovereign nation, all that stuff they like to say, and we're going to have to have a really deep foreign policy partnership with this huge continent right on our doorstep and work very closely with France and Germany and and have a strategic alliance on, on mutual threats and all this kind of thing. But instead, you can see that the current foreign policy of the government is shaped entirely on an underlying theme of how do we distance ourselves from Europe as much as possible and where it can be done, belittle Europe, make it seem somehow that it's a sclerotic, gradually failing continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think in that terms, I rank the foreign policy very low because ultimately, even if you accept Brexit and you say it's a brilliant thing and we've finally got all the freedoms we need and all that, this need to continue to needle the Europeans just is is so self-destructive. And at the end of the day, you know, however many trade deals we signed with countries literally on the other side of the planet, uh, just because they happen to speak English as their first language, it is never going to be a foreign policy. Yasmin, why do you think Sleaze is cutting through to the public? And why is it cutting through to the public now when it's been going on really for months? No, I mean, it, it is a good question, particularly on timing. You know, I mean, I think it, at least as, as someone who's kind of, you know, I haven't covered this particular story closely. So as a as an actual observer, it really did feel like a lot of it just came on all at once. And even if you're not someone who particularly cares about this issue, if it hasn't cut through for you, or even if you're not someone who really particularly cares if politicians have second or even third or fourth jobs, I think this notion that the person that you elected to represent you in parliament is using that position to enrich themselves or their cronies, or indeed to even use that time to be doing other work that isn't what you elected them to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's understandably quite frustrating, especially given the fact that we've been through a very difficult two years where we've kind of looked to the state to protect us and to, you know, whether it comes to testing or the rollout of vaccines, you know, even if it's in in kind of smaller ways, things that come down to the constituency level. Could that be the answer, Yasmin? Could it be that the, the fact that they got away with so much during the period of the pandemic proper, because people's bandwidth was taken up entirely by this health crisis, it gave them a false sense of how much they could get away with once actually the pandemic news quietened down and people had a little bit more free bandwidth to look at what was going on. Yeah, potentially. I mean, and also I think the fact that we were also, because of the severity of the crisis, I think our our attention and eyes were trained on our politicians and the decisions they were making and the contracts they were making to get us the vital things we needed, whether it was testing or even like PPE and stuff like that. But I think more fundamentally, at the end of the day, the relationship between a politician and their constituent is somewhat akin to that of a boss and their employer. And, you know, we're not hiring our politicians to, you know, do a few jobs on the side whilst representing us. I mean, we would like to think that being a a politician, whether you're a lawmaker here in Britain or a senator or congressman or woman in the United States, that that is a full-time job, that that requires... Mm 
most of your attention, if not all of it. And and the idea that you would on the side also split your time to make tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds on the side doing other things. And I mean, not just doing that, but using your current role as a politician to do that, I think would understandably rub people the wrong way. Steve, do you think do you think Labour is capitalising on it in the right way? It, it feels to me slightly as if they fluffed it, at least in their initial reaction, by jumping on every second job story instead of focusing on corruption and abuse of the state machinery to subvert the rules, which is the pattern specific to Johnson, and much harder to turn into sort of everyone is at it. What do you think, and can they turn it around if you agree with that assessment? I agree with that absolutely, completely. What triggered all this was the Owen Patterson saga. And then very quickly, up pop various stories, you know, Cox earning hundreds of thousands of pounds. Now, uh, that is outrageous when you're meant to be a full-time MP, but it's an entirely separate issue. And what Labour did, and they tend to do this, um, is fall into the trap of them making it about MPs and second jobs. And then the media say, well, hold on a second, Keir Starmer's earned £100,000. So every time now a Labour person comes on, they have to defend Keir Starmer Mm -hmm. earning from a second job. And suddenly the whole thing becomes blurred. Whereas what I think they should have done is said, you know, this uh, Owen Patterson thing is an act of outrageous corruption, but alarmingly for British voters is part of a pattern, where, uh, not only in Boris Johnson's political career, but also in the way he decides policies, not reading all the material, leaping to conclusions. And in that way, you link it to other things. For a start, it links to Brexit, where I'm, you know, from all that we hear, he didn't understand the implications of what he was doing with Brexit. And you link it to, you know, a social care package, a social care revolution, which actually none of the money's being spent on social care, it's on NHS backlogs. And and try and form a pattern about that. Instead, they've got into a complete mess about second jobs, what they would restrict, what they wouldn't, and I think have lost the edge on, on what was mm. an open goal for them. Okay, f- a final question. I want you to take a little sideways look at one of the other great offices of state. So last year, Rishi Sunak became Britain's most popular chancellor for over 40 years. Do you think this sets him up for a leadership bid? I I cannot help but notice that in your book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, uh, there's quite a few well-thought-of chancellors that never actually made the transition. Is is there something about that, that position that actually sets you up badly? Yeah, if I were Rishi Sunak, I'd be quite worried. I think Tim Shipman, the Sunday Times political editor, might have given him a copy of the book, actually, because one of the themes of the book is precisely, as you say, so many chancellors seen as the likely next prime minister or leader never make it. There are several reasons for that. One of them is that in the end, they have to take tough decisions which alienate parts of their party, by the time the vacancy arises, they're actually quite unpopular. So you're at, from earlier on, you were saying, you know, isn't this the time for Sunak to make his move? It is when he's so popular. 
but he can't. He would alienate the membership if he were to mount an overt campaign against uh, Boris Johnson. So he has to sit and wait and wait and wait, because prime ministers never give up voluntarily unless you're Harold Wilson in 1976. He's the only one. I would worry if I were Sunak reading these glorious opinion polls, making him so popular that the chance might pass him by. Finally, in this age of social media and big tech, you can receive your news in any way you choose, with any slant you choose, anywhere, anytime. News consumption skyrocketed with pandemic lockdowns, but it also led some to fatigue or anxiety. So how do our panellists deal with this news fatigue? Do we take breaks, rational news intake, or comfort eat good news content to balance our diet? Yasmin, as a journalist, your entire job is based on reporting and reacting to the news. What is your consumption pattern of preference? I was going to say, I don't think I can ever take a break in, in any meaningful sense. Um, but, but you know, I do try, I, I do get news fatigue like we all do. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I have a couple of tricks. I mean, I think the first thing is I permit myself not to keep up with everything that's happening. I have coverage areas, areas that fit on my beat, whether it's populism or autocracy or nationalism. And so I really try to focus my attention on, on those sorts of areas, kind of come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to be on top of every story. But, but I also try to do other things that, you know, I know that I obviously spend a lot of time in front of a computer screen. So when I'm not working, I try to like limit how much news time, news I'm consuming on my off time. So for example, I've deactivated my notifications for Twitter and all my other social media. Mm. And that is like the single-handedly the best thing I've ever done. I did that earlier in the year and it's amazing. I also try to diversify how I get my news. So I listen to a lot of podcasts like this one. So, um, you know, they're great at synthesizing the news. It's easy on the eyes and, you know, it can be paired with something like walking or running. So it doesn't really feel like I'm tiring myself out in the way that one does when they're scrolling endlessly. Oh, good advice. Arthur, what's your method of choice when it comes to getting the news and what areas do you focus on? My thing is that you have to accept it's worth paying for the good stuff and then, you know, put your money where your mouth is. So I I, I pay to have subscriptions to things that seem worth paying for. Uh, so here's a free advert, you know, for the FT and The Economist and The Atlantic. Yes. And uh, yes, so Yasmin, you're in. It's okay. And the other thing I, I don't do, I've, I've pretty much given up on the Today program because I think that the there's a myth about the sort of the day's agenda that, yeah. that in an era of constantly rolling news is is just slightly pointless. So yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I have found this recently as well um, with the 24 hour news cycle and the rise of smartphones there is also a lesser need for the standard six o'clock news or 10 o'clock news. Was news more reliable when there was a, a cooling off period? I'm thinking specifically of the Liverpool terrorist incident that had you logged on to social media yesterday early evening, you would have gotten really quite a detailed story about how he was heading to some remembrance event and then realized what was going on and diverted to the hospital instead and locked the ter terrorist in and run away and then it blew. And today we found out that all of that was a, a you know, delicately constructed speculation. Is there room for a more authoritative version of the news still in today's environment? 
Well, I think there is, but the difficulty is that, as Yasmin was talking about it, it, it's just very easy to get sucked into the Insta news, whether it's people on Twitter, uh, some of whom are fairly credible people, but are, are, are drawn to speculate, and we've all done it, so I'm, I'm not criticising that necessarily. You know, we can't go back to it, basically. That Yes, probably news was more reliable. Perhaps it was... It, it had fewer perspectives, you know, it was controlled by a, an established in-group, an elite group, whereas now arguably it's, it's, it's much more open and democratic, but of course it's much more easy to manipulate. Steve, Alistair Campbell once said that he had some sympathy with modern spin doctors. There was a time when one would have until 6pm at least to formulate a sort of response to a story that broke that day. And now, especially with social media, you might just have 10 minutes to turn yeah. things around. How has this changed British politics, do you think? It's speeded it up. It's added to what was always a sort of fairly frenzied political culture in Britain. It's become more so. It's made certainly the senior politicians, uh, both in government and in opposition, more neurotic and Uh, the spin doctors so-called, have no time to weigh up significance. That word significance is, is lost in all of this, and yet it's such an important word. How significant is this story that is mm. erupting over Twitter and rolling news at, say, 10 past 11 on a Monday morning? And you think, oh, yeah, no, it, it, let's just join in. Let's just go for it. <laughs> and then politicians have to respond uh, without analyzing its significance. And so it, it's it's kind of changed everything. But I, I don't buy the idea it's changed everything wholly for the worse. You can choose to be much better informed as a result of all of this. And you can, I mean, I'm completely hooked as well, like most of us. My only kind of escapism is to choose podcasts on different subjects sometimes. I listen to podcasts, <laughs> you know, about the arts and football, which is a form of politics, really, the football podcasts. But it kind of provides a break from politics and current affairs um, but I'm completely hooked but I think I, I agree with that I don't listen to the Today program anymore I used to be on it I don't listen I was completely addicted to it once and I don't think the BBC has learned at all that what podcasts show is a yearning to allow uh, discussions to breathe issues to breathe too much is still crammed in you know the most an interview lasts is 10 minutes it's very formulaic and the 10 o'clock tv news and six o'clock tv news is wholly formulaic i mean i could mm. write the running order in advance of any 10 o'clock news bulletin <laughs> a two and a half minute report two minute two-way with laura koonsberg on to the next thing and and it is it seems to me so dated when uh, people have the options of a greater variety of formats and depth and conversational style See, and Steve, so on. Steve, do you, do you think it's easier for Downing Street when there was, it was easier for them when there was less coverage? Or does it actually give the government, which has, after all, a huge media operation and more resources, a systemic advantage to have this constant um 24-hour cycle is the flip side that there's less journalistic stamina to pursue a story and stick with it because the news cycle has moved on so you end up looking like a, an obsessed prat if you if you you know three days later you're going on about the same issue 
Yeah, I suppose, ironically, there are times when it does escape scrutiny because things move on so fast Mm. when, theoretically, it should be much more exposed to scrutiny given the huge range of different outlets all obsessed with what the government is up to. I think, on the whole, it makes governing more difficult. Even like this government, you have quite a few powerful newspapers backing you, basically, most of the time, not with the Slee story. Even with that, it makes it problematic. It was very interesting when they Downing Street dropped the idea of daily televised press briefings, because they are on the defensive so often it would have just fueled negative stories. So I think on the whole, it makes it more difficult. But I think you're right. That's an interesting point that you can escape scrutiny because people are impatient. There's no, it, it encourages impatience, Twitter and all these other outlets. And, and so people move on perhaps more quickly than they should do. And that, if you're a clever government, means you can probably avoid some of the nightmares that you might have got with a slower news cycle. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and miscellaneous activities that have taken our panellists' minds away from the bruising world of politics? Arthur, what's your recommendation? It's not a particularly escapist escape route, but I've been reading this wonderful book called Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. It's by Nathan Law, who is this very inspiring young man who was elected to the Hong Kong uh, Legislative Council when he was uh, only just out of his teenage years. And then, of course, was one of the leaders of the democracy movement there until he came to exile in this country. And his book has just come out. It recounts his own experiences, but also, really importantly, how individual ordinary people can be part of a global struggle to defend democracy and that seems worth getting out of bed for. Mm, Sounds terrific. Yasmin? Well I was going to say that I've been trying to do more park run now that it's just dismal outside and I need an excuse to actually leave the house but I did I'm pretty sure I spotted Ed Miliband at the finish the last time I did it so I will not be doing that anymore um, because that is a reminder of politics Um, so I will in the interim be doing something uh, probably a a lot less important than than Arthur's recommendation I'm going to listen to Taylor Swift's um, new album particularly the 10 minute version that I think has got the internet mad at Jake Gyllenhaal so 10 minute version of a song I should say 10 minute version of a song fabulous how about you Steve we must be doing the same uh, run. I see Ed Miliband at the finish as well, although he's now so much faster than me that I see him much later at the finish. Um, yeah, I've been reading The Odyssey and studying it actually for, for something I'm going to be doing next uh, year. And it is on one level escapism, but it is one of the great political thrillers. Well, it's a thriller on many levels. So it's, it's brilliant, actually, and very easy to read. Well, as a Greek, I must agree. Of um, course, yeah, you you can read it. The law. I, I, I read a translation. <laughs> um, I, I've been finally, I finally got around to watching White Lotus, and I would, uh, oh, yeah. I would recommend it uh, very highly. It's very funny. It's very disturbing. It's very dry. And I have to say, as someone who has spent many years working in the hospitality industry, it is a horror film of sorts as well for someone that has worked in the hospitality industry because it's just too close to the bone. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. To Yasmin Sarhan. Thanks for having me. And to our special guest, Steve Richards. Thank you. 
We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And I'll be back with a new Culture Bunker on Saturday. Remember, if you like this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right there in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise, and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You will earn our gratitude and a shout-out at the end of the podcast to wit, here are this week's... So it's hello and many thanks from me to Dan Pawley, David Housen, and Rafe Wedgwood. And Rafe's my cousin, so hello Rafe, thanks for supporting us. <laughs> Best wishes and many thanks from me to Jack Ringland, Andrew Morgan, and Audrey Watt. And all the best from me to Rosemary Hoban, Mike Quinn, and Chris. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alexandreou, with Yasmin Serhan and Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison, the assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>